From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Alex Brugner joins us to talk about the snare complex and brain signaling. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. program. Well, how cells talk to each other has been a mystery for many years, especially the interactions between the cells in the brain. Well, for the first time, scientists have determined the protein structure that regulates the signaling process. Uh, joining us today is Professor Axel Brunger, who will tell us about his groundbreaking work in determining this particular molecular structure. He is professor in the School of Molecular and Cellular Physiology uh, in the School of Medicine and is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Professor Ranger, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. This is really exciting work. So tell us, a lot of these concepts in brain physiology can seem a little esoteric. Can you give us an analogy of, of what you observed in these molecules and how they function? Yes, so there, uh, our research um, um, is focusing at the uh, uh, molecular machine that's responsible for the release of neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters, you may be familiar with some of the names like uh, serotonin, glutamate, dopamine, and so on. So they're, they're small, generally small molecules. And and there essentially are uh, signaling molecules that, that pass signals between neurons. And what has been known for a long time is that neurotransmitters, they are stored in small, what you call vesicles. These are small um, spherical compartments uh, about 50 nanometers in diameter. And they um, are then released, the content is released, the neurotransmitter, when the neuron uh, receives an action potential. And, and that release then of these neurotransmitter, that as a consequence, these uh, small molecules bind to receptors in the postsynaptic neuron, and that uh, completes the uh, communication between neurons. So it's an integral, so the the uh, release of neurotransmitters is, is an important part of the neurotransmission or the communication between neurons. So it has been known for a long time, these, these basic principles, but the, the molecular details of how these synaptic vesicles fuse with the membrane, how they then release neurotransmitter, the molecular details of this process are, are still unclear. And, and the structure is, is, is a stepping stone forward because it, it showed us how two classes of different proteins actually interact and how they work together in this process. So there's one class of proteins uh, that 
they're called snare proteins. And, and, and these proteins are, as, as we know right now, today, are primarily providing the energy source to actually cause fusion between the synaptic vesicles and the plasma membrane. And they do that by forming a complex, and when the complex is formed, the force or the energy that's released is made available for the fusion process. So that's one class of proteins. The, the other class is now is, is a uh, protein called synaptotagmin. It, it's a calcium-binding protein, and this protein um, is thought to, to actually provide now the trigger to actually fuse the synaptic vessels with the membrane. And again, synaptotagmins have been known for quite some time, but what had been unknown how snares and synaptotagmins are actually interacting in, a molecular de- in molecular detail. So our structure has now for the first time revealed one of those interfaces, and it's actually we found multiple interfaces in the structure, but one particular one that uh, we were, were excited about is fairly extensive interface that's evolutionarily conserved, and, and also the interactions we saw in the crystal structure are specific, so they're hydrogen bonds and salt bridges and so on. So when we discovered this interface by solving the structure of this complex, we then um, tested this interface uh, by making mutations based on the structure. And we then tested these mutations to first show that they would disrupt the interface uh, in the test tube. And then in collaboration with uh, Tom Sudhoff, a colleague at uh, also Stanford School of Medicine and also HMI investigator. So in collaboration with Tom Sudhoff, we then uh, looked at what happens when we make those mutations in neurons. So in his lab, uh, used uh, conditional knockout mice for synaptagmin. One is knocked out and then is uh, and, and then rescued with the particular synaptagmin mutations. And what we found is when we uh, uh, then tested these mutations that we made based on the structure that we were, were able to disrupt the fast neurotransmitter release almost to the level of complete knockout, which, which really tells us that this is a really essential interface for the process of release of neurotransmitters between septotagmin and near complex. So, and the analogy that uh, I like to give here is that this interface, as we found in our, in our structures, we own, there's several structures we determined actually, one in the presence of calcium and the other one in the presence of magnesium, and there's really no difference between the structures. So we believe that this interface forms before the neuron is firing, so to speak, uh, before an action potential is already there, it's already pre-assembled, and then it sort of new, uh, it operates as a block rather than having that a neuron having to, to assemble this this uh, complex upon an action potential. So that's the new finding here is that we find this uh, calcium independent interface that presumably is already there before the synaptic vesicle fusion happens. And, uh, and it really then sets sort of the, the stage for what actually goes on when, when the fusion process happens. So that's sort of in a, in a nutshell. So it's basically the, uh, 
the pre-assembly of this machine that uh, became much clearer now with, with the structure that we determined. You've been quoted as saying that this process is analogous to a gun that fires, the neurotransmitters being what's being fired, and, and the structure, would you call that the trigger? Well, the trigger, the trigger is really the synaptotagmin part. That's where uh, calcium binds, and that's actually what's triggering this binding event. Somehow triggers fusion. So, but if one would just have synaptotagmin without snare complex, fusion wouldn't happen because the transmission wouldn't really happen between synaptotagmin and the actual fusion process itself. So what this really is, it's, it's the assembly of the, the machine causes the fusion itself. So the trigger is clearly synaptotagmin, but what, what this complex, the, the entire assembly, or, or I should say maybe part of the assembly, other parts that are still missing in the system, but this is sort of an absolute minimal machinery that is required. You need both uh, the snares and synaptotagmin at the absolute minimal have any sort of calcium-triggered fusion. And so what we're looking at is here the assembly of both parts of this machine. When you carry out this research using the uh, X-ray light source, yes, the idea is that you're looking at these interactions not in vivo, but as crystals of these proteins interacting with each other. Is that right? Yes, correct. How, how big are these crystals that you grow, and then how are they imaged? So this, of course, is, um, I mean, first, the, the, the biggest challenge for, for us has been for many years to actually um, obtain crystals of this complex. We and presumably many other labs tried in the past to obtain crystals of the complex, and in generally speaking, um, it was not successful until recently to um, crystallize the complex. And so, and that was, I mean, it's basically in crystallography, you have to try many different conditions and many different expression constructs. So these are, this is all uh, recombinantly expressed proteins, so they are grown in suitable hosts. In our case, we're using um, bacteria actually to grow these uh, to uh, to obtain uh, these proteins synthetically, and then we purify them, and then we uh, um, we induce crystallization. Now, through a number of uh, uh, sort of uh, tricks and uh, using particular conditions for well, this particular crystal structure we were finally able to get crystals of the complex. And they were about about 100 uh, micrometer long and about 10 to 20 micrometer thin plates. They're not small or in terms of crystals, but they're one dimension is relatively thin. And so that was for the, this new light source at uh, SLAC, the LCLS, became very useful because we'd also collected data at uh, synchrotrons, including Stanford, also has a synchrotron called the SSRL, and we also collected uh, data at the Oregon uh, National Lab at the Advanced uh, Photon Source there. And the the limiting resolution uh, at those synchrotrons was a little disappointing um, because we didn't quite see all the details well enough, particularly where the individual atoms are. So, so then when we uh, collected data at the LCLS Slack at Stanford, saw quite a significant improvement in limiting resolution, and we, we also obtained higher quality electron density maps, which allowed us to 
in many cases, sort of uniquely positioned the side chains and so on, especially at these interfaces between the proteins. For these particular crystals, because of their morphology, LPLS gave us the, uh, actually the best quality uh, density. You mentioned that you weren't able to resolve some aspects of these crystals. Uh, what, what are your plans to, to move forward? As I already mentioned, so the the snare complex and the synaptotag, one of the two parts that we there would be determined in the complex in our crystal structure is determined. That's only a part of the story. There's, there's other factors involved that are also interacting with with, with this with these proteins, especially the snares. And so, what we like to do right now is to, based on the success we had here, try to see if we can get these other factors to co-crystallize to actually form even more complete complexes and, and then image those complexes. Because clearly, uh, while again, the snares and the tagmen are essential, there's other proteins that also have played significant roles. And, and again, it's uh, uh, not entirely clear how they all act together, how they all cooperate together. So that will be our next goal is to uh, to obtain even even larger complexes with with all these uh, individual parts and pieces put together. You, you know, you mentioned that this work has implications for treating uh, various illnesses like uh, schizophrenia, perhaps Parkinson's. Could you tell us how this could lead to new drugs or better treatments? Yeah, so I think that's um, the way I sort of like to, I mean, I'd like to caution here that this is more sort of a general statement that some of these diseases, including Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's and, and so on, they do somehow what people observe in, in, in those patients is that there is some change in, in neurotransmitter balance or the uh, amount of neurotransmitters and so on. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that the disease is directly related to uh, the proteins we're working on, but it's clear that there, there is some interplay or there's some effect that these diseases have on, on the list of neurotransmitter. So the idea is once you have that understanding of the release machinery, that may open up possibilities for actually uh, uh, controlling the process through pharmaceuticals. And, and, and more importantly, uh, in some cases, particular Parkinson's, we actually we had another collaboration with Tom Sutal some years ago on a, on a protein that's related to Parkinson's. And, and this uh, protein, which naturally occurs at high, relatively high level in, in neurons, but then in, in, the, in certain forms of Parkinson's, uh, this protein tends to aggregate and form, in other words, forms large uh, uh, clusters. And it's these clusters that actually uh, interact with uh, some of these near proteins. And, and that could actually be a direct link between that um, Parkinson-related protein called synuclein and, and, and its effect on neurotransmitter release. So I think that's, one, that's at least one example where if I were to understand how synuclein, this Parkinson-related protein, interacts with the release machinery, in other words, snares, that again could maybe give some directions or targets for pharmaceutical uh, development. So, I mean, I think that's still well in the future, but at least right now, getting those structures, sort of 
important first step to then develop possible targets for pharmaceutical development that would, of course, act in the presynaptic terminal. And that's different from most drugs that are used for the treatment of neurological disorders that, that generally act on, on the receptor side. So, so these um, potentially by, by regulating or by manipulating the uh, release in the presynaptic terminal, that would open up new possibilities and maybe make allow one to obtain more specific uh, drugs. So that's the idea. I should also note here that in terms of the snares and the synaptic tag, and as, as far as I know, there's no direct disease connections, let's say, between certain mutations of these proteins and human disease. And, and probably one can understand that since a, a, a mutation that actually would have an effect uh, on this machine would be uh, presumably uh, so lethal that it doesn't actually, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, the organism wouldn't actually survive past birth. So, so I think that might explain why that this fundamental machinery doesn't seem to have, uh, at least to our knowledge today, disease-related mutations. But there are all these, these other factors, including synuclein, that do in fact interact with the release machinery and that are related to the disease. One last brief question. Uh, what about other methods of characterization like um, NMR, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, or uh, Raman spectroscopy uh, in, in looking at how these molecules interact? Very good question. Um, over the last several years, it's actually uh, electron microscopy with new um, electron detectors and uh, improved data processing. One has been able to extend the resolution of electron microscopy images dramatically. And so for studying complexes, uh, as we do in our system here, we actually have been using electron microscopy in a different, for a different complex also related to synaptic vesicle fusion. And, and really obtain dramatic improvements in, in terms of the resolution of the density map. So that's really, uh, a, uh, really become an uh, important alternative to crystallization. And the advantage, of course, is easier that you don't have to crystallize the proteins. You can look at the averages between individual particles without having to crystallize them. And then, uh, so that's again looking at synthetically produced complexes the, uh, again, with ultramicroscopy, the, uh, the other application is to image entire synapses, to image synaptic vesicles as they are docked to the membrane in, obtained from actual neurons, so that you would potentially be able to eventually resolve uh, proteins in, in, in those uh, uh, tomography images. I mean, we're still too far today, at least, to resolve individual proteins, but the, uh, there are some new technologies from an electron microscopy that may at some point make it possible to, to at least uh, have uh, a low resolution idea where these proteins are. So I think that's, uh, from my perspective, it's a very exciting development for, for imaging is electron microscopy uh, that in, in addition to, of course, the, the extra electron laser, which I mentioned today, but, but again, that particular application I talked about today is as far as crystallization now. You can also envision, and that was uh, one of the uh, ideas also behind the LCLS extracollectural laser, that one would be able to image uh, individual particles uh, without crystallization through this very intense X-ray beam. And it's, in many ways, it's not analogous to uh, the electron microscopy.
here in the chain. So, and, and so I also uh, would expect major advances to happen um, there as well. Professor Grunger, I guess we are out of time here. Are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, yourself or your work? Well, I think uh, it, it really it's uh, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity here to talk about my work. And, and I should maybe mention that this particular complex and the the other I mentioned uh, is something that we've been working on for quite a few years, and it actually started with, with the complex that we solved in 1998, and then been for many years tried to get these entire auto complexes. So it's really quite an exciting period for my lab is to now see all these uh, new results coming out and to uh, so finally actually get some idea of how this might work. And, uh, and it's, uh, so I'm, I'm really, it's really a very exciting time in the laboratory. Uh, Professor Brunger, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Grok Science Show. You're, you're welcome and uh, thank you for inviting me. And we were just talking to Professor Alex Brunger from the School of Medicine and Cellular Physiology at Stanford University his work on the molecular complex that regulates the firing of neurotransmitters in the brain was recently published in Nature. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook, and Twitter. You can also email us at science at groks.net. For Rock Science, I'm Frank Wing. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>